This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, I'm finally uh, starting to feel better after my uh, bout of COVID plus uh, rebound last week. Uh, and I was able to return to work. But uh, it really left me uh, rather drained of energy. And uh, rather than try to prepare a Dharma talk uh, for you today, uh, I decided what I would do was simply uh, read the paper that has been distributed for uh, discussion, uh, Finding Identity in the Land of No Self. Uh, this paper was written at the invitation of um, a journal called Psychoanalytic Inquiry, uh, a journal for psychoanalysts was, that was uh, supposed to be dedicated to issues around spiritual practice and LGBTQ identity. Uh, and they wanted me to write something um, on those themes. It's always an interesting exercise to try to um, write about this practice for a non-Buddhist audience. And some of what's in here is, you may find uh, very familiar, but I do think it's an interesting uh, thing to do to try sometimes to go back and uh, be as clear as possible about the assumptions that underlie our practice for people who are not familiar with it. Finding identity in the land of no self. As, as an epigraph, an excerpt from the Blue Cliff Record, a monk asked his teacher, Darius, the body of form is destroyed. What is the enduring Dharma body? Dairyu answered, the autumn foliage is like brocade. The waters of the valley well up like indigo. When I told my students and colleagues that I had been asked to write this article on the development of LGBTQ identities, within the framework of spiritual practice, a common reply was some version of, so they asked an old straight white guy? Now there is no arguing with that description. So I suppose I must start by saying something about myself and how I think about the whole question of identity in regards to what we do in spiritual practice. 
spiritual practice itself needs some clarification because it can cover a wide variety of traditions and practices, ranging from very traditional monastic disciplines to all the varieties of mindfulness now available in the marketplace. What I practice is Zen Buddhism, or more precisely Zazen, the sitting meditation practice that originated in China close to two millennia ago, and then passed down to a Japanese monastic tradition that was eventually adapted by a succession of Japanese and American teachers to contemporary life here in America. I received what is called Dharma transmission from my teacher, an old straight white lady named Joko Beck, who had received it in turn from an old straight Japanese man named Taigan Maizumi. Their gender and sexual orientation turn out to be very relevant to our story, since Maizumi, like quite a few of the Asian Buddhist teachers of his generation who started teaching in America beginning in the 1960s, became embroiled in scandals of sexual misconduct. Sexuality was thus an important part of the story of Buddhism in America from very early on was a large part of one of the most basic questions that arose during those early years. Just what did we mean by words like spiritual or enlightened? And what relation did these states have to what we were used to calling the psychological? Were these distinct, separate aspects of mind or character that could develop along separate tracks, as it were? Such, such that someone who is spiritually advanced, whatever that meant, could still harbor serious unresolved character disorders. The repeated instances of sexual misconduct often are found along with serious alcohol abuse gave credence to the concept of spiritual bypassing, a term coined by John Wellwood to describe what in psychodynamic terms we would call dissociation, a persistent splitting off of seemingly wise and ethical self-states from unresolved issues around authority and dependency. Charlotte Beck, who is often simply known by her Japanese dharma name, Joko, was one of the first women Zen teachers in America. And as such, her teaching center in San Diego became a safe haven for many women and disillusioned students in general who encountered abuse at the hands of a variety of supposedly enlightened old straight white guys, both American and Asian. This led to two fundamental shifts in how we, the next generation of students and teachers, came to think about Zen. First, there could be no split between the spiritual and the psychological, even though one could develop extraordinary capacities for concentration and self-regulation in meditation, even though one could experience extraordinary moments of bliss or so-called mystical experience like oneness. None of this could be considered of lasting value unless it was also integrated with one's everyday behavior and reflected in one's everyday relationships, work, and family life. 
This was one very important dimension. It was foregrounded by bringing meditation practices out of monastic style intensive retreats and into day-to-day -day practice and life. The other was traditional Buddhist concepts about the nature of self and what was called no self had to be re-examined and integrated in some way with our Western psychological and psychodynamic ways of thinking. If no self represented some higher state that transcended our ordinary self-centeredness, it had to be built on, not replace, a level we, of what we might call healthy ego functioning or self-cohesion. Certainly lack of self in the Buddhist sense couldn't mean lack of ego in the Freudian sense. Forgetting the self didn't mean forgetting toilet training. A psychologist and meditation teacher, Jack Engler, famously said, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Now, this brings us back to our original question concerning the place of sexuality and identity in spiritual practice. Two cultural currents ran at seemingly cross-purposes. On one hand, much of the popularity of Zen in the 50s and 60s derived from its countercultural association with the Beats, writers like Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, and Allen Ginsberg, and popularizers such as Alan Watts, who coined the label Beat Zen to describe the antinomian countercultural impulse that led so many of us to rebel against the conformity of what was then called the straight mainstream. Back then, straight didn't mean heterosexual, but somebody who didn't smoke dope. Spiritual liberation went hand in hand with sexual liberation, or so we imagine. But the liberation promised by Zen Buddhism was also framed as liberation from desire, attachment, and ego. There was, so there was inherently a good deal of confusion between the positive and negative forms of liberty being invoked here. It was both the pursuit of freedom from desire and the liberating freedom to become more authentic and a non-conforming person. But by the time students started studying with Joko Beck, freedom from the predatory sexuality of male teachers, which had sometimes been rationalized as a freedom to be unconventionally unconventional and sexually liberated was in the foreground. Questions of misconduct made sexuality seem like a contaminant in the spiritual arena. Entangled in the questions of identity is the oldest of misunderstandings that has bedeviled the dialogue between psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Ever since I started practicing the two disciplines, I've encountered some version or another of the question, but doesn't psychoanalysis work to strengthen the self while Buddhism either says there is no self or if there is one, wants to eliminate it? It reminds me of Kohat's last speech in Berkeley, the only time I saw him in person. But he'd been trying to explain what he meant by empathy for so long 
he was getting sick of the subject. But because people persisted in misunderstanding him, he felt he had to try to explain it one last time. So let me give a, a short explanation of what is meant by no self. Buddhism maintains that everything in the universe is characterized by two basic attributes, impermanence and interdependence. This assertion ran counter to what was then the dominant belief at the time in India, namely that the self or soul, what was called the Atman, was fundamentally inseparable from something transcendental and eternal, the Brahman or Godhead. Thus, the self, soul, Atman had an existence separate from the physical body and could persist after death and be reincarnated. The self or soul thus was identified by having a permanent unchanging essence or spiritual as opposed to physical substance. Buddha's doctrine, by contrast, was of anatman, no self meaning there was no eternal essence. Instead, everything was defined by an interconnected web of causal relations or interdependence. Thus, when the classic Buddhist text, the Heart Sutra said, form is exactly emptiness, emptiness exactly form. Emptiness doesn't mean some kind of empty void that exists distinct from ordinary matter. Rather, it's the nature of ordinary matter to be subject to constant change and interaction. This is as true of the chair I'm sitting on as it is of the self composing these words. Now, if we want to bring this into contemporary psychological language, we would say this is a fundamentally anti-essentialist position, one that is thoroughly relational, intersubjective, or constructivist. Instead of looking for a true self deep inside that contains the essence of who and what we really are, we might say Buddhism calls upon us to become radically superficial, to recognize that what we are most profoundly is just this moment of experience. And this moment is shaped by everything that has gone before and is happening all around and is constantly changing and fleeting. Suffering in Buddhist terms arises from our resistance to this reality, from our attempts to deny change and vulnerability that comes with interdependence. When Buddha's words were translated as the root of suffering is desire, they can be understood both in a literal sense to include possessiveness, emotional attachments, and sexual desire, but also in a broader metaphorical sense as the desire for objects of permanence, for a world of unchanging, controllable things. This seemingly paradoxical therapeutic corollary to this is what the profound, excuse me, 
The seemingly paradoxical therapeutic corollary to this is that the profoundest changes occur when we leave everything just as it is, when we deeply accept and cease to resist our mind in all its myriad forms and self-states. Extending this acceptance to our bodies as it adds another dimension. And as we will see in the case of trans individuals, further complications. The best and clearest examples of the reality of impermanence and interdependence we will encounter in our lives is simply our bodies. It pervades, it provides an ongoing display of change and vulnerability as it grows, develops, ages, falls ill, and eventually dies. As long as we are alive, we are dependent on air, water, food, shelter, but also on our relations with others in order to be, be and become who and what we are. As Koat himself asserted, autonomy is a myth. We cannot be ourselves by ourselves. This state of affairs, seemingly so obvious and universal, nonetheless has throughout history been denied and resisted, and that resistance is often gone by the name of spirituality. Although, although the word spirit is derived from spiritus, the Latin for breath, and breathing is an activity of living bodies, Spirituality has often expressed our longing to separate the spirit, soul, atman, from the mortal, physical body in hopes for either a pure, uncontaminated life here on earth or some version of immortality in which the spirit outlives the body. Now, it will not come as a shock that many religious traditions, and Buddhism is no exception, have regarded sexuality as the principal contaminant of our embodied existence. Buddhism began as a form of life and practice for celibate mendicant monastics. B. Scherer's review of traditional Buddhist attitudes to various forms of sexuality notes, and here I'll quote her at length, Sensuality and sensual passion are regarded in early Buddhism as manifestations of clinging or attachment. Sexual activity is therefore usually an enactment of desire or craving, one of the three core afflicting emotions or defilements that cease with enlightenment. This perspective means that all sexual activities Content can potentially be, be viewed as a problem, but it does not automatically enter Buddhist traditions sex negative. Rather, sexuality features simply among bodily expressions and functions. Sex is simply something people do, and as such, connected with attachment. Hence, sexuality is a training field for the cultivation of ethics and right conduct. Non-cis males, however, are persistently characterized as possessing untamed, predatory, and aggressive sexuality, and are therefore regarded as a threat to the male monastic purity. 
In consequence, female monastics are subjected to additional restrictive rules, and the ordination of anyone outside the normative male-female gender spectrum is prohibited. Now, regarding Buddhism's attitude to homosexuality in particular, and Glide notes, despite the ambivalence concerning homosexuality in Buddhist history, the evidence seems to suggest that as a whole, Buddhism has, for the most part, been neutral on the question of homosexuality. The qu principal question for Buddhism has not been one of heterosexuality versus homosexuality, but one of sexuality versus celibacy. In this sense, homosexuality, when condemned, is condemned more for being an instance of sexuality than for being homos, involving partners of the same sex. The fact that Buddhism has been essentially neutral in this regard does not imply that cultures in which Buddhism arose and flourished have always been neutral. Some at certain times have been tolerant of same-sex relations, others have not. However, because of the essential neutrality of the Buddhist tradition in this regard, it is adapted to particular sociocultural norms. So throughout its history, we find a wide gamut of opinions concerning homosexual activity, ranging from condemnation, never to the point of active persecution, to praise. What is perhaps a particularly modern phenomenon is bringing together the questions of sexuality and questions of identity indeed putting sexuality at the core of the question of identity. Calling myself an old straight white guy makes race, gender, and sexual orientation all essential features of my identity. And for traditional Buddhists, we must recall, essential is a dirty word, or perhaps we should just say it's a delusionary word because it seems to make permanent and unchanging what is actually, like everything else, impermanent and relationally interdependent. If that applies to straight, white, and male, how should we regard lesbian, gay, bi, queer, and trans? The answer is not straightforward. As Glide further notes, whereas gay, lesbian, and bisexual studies often advocate an essentialist model of sexuality. Following the anti-foundational orientation of both postmodern and post-structural thought, queer theory proposes a radical social constructivism. It disrupts all stable, binary, and fixed configurations of gender and sexual identity, and claims rather that all gendered and sexual identities are discursively conditioned, contingent, and ideologically motivated. Queer is a notoriously difficult term to define because of its intentional, indeterminate, elastic nature and its resistance to becoming a normative identity category. Commonly employed as an umbrella signifier for people with culturally marginal gender and sexual identities, 
queer emerged as an intellectual term to delineate a distinct theoretical discourse, queer theory that developed in part as a critique of gay, lesbian, and bisexual studies. What Gleick has called queering Buddhism can be seen then as an extension of Buddhism's own questioning of essentialism in all its forms, with a modern emphasis on challenging Buddhism's own unexamined heteronormativity. From this perspective, the queering of Buddhism, following the work of feminist Buddhologist Rita Gross, illuminates and interrogates the gap between Buddhist philosophical non-essentialism and the, excuse me, the institutionalized rigid gender binaries and heteronormativity of traditional forms of Buddhism. Central Buddhist philosophical concepts, such as dependent arising, sunyata or emptiness, and Buddha nature, can be seen as intrinsically queer because they undo dualistic ways of thinking and replace them with non-dual forms of consciousness that deconstruct consensus reality. Positing a deep affiliation between Buddhist and queer discourses, Corliss suggests, quote, queer consciousness is more compatible with the Buddha Dharma than the traditional patriarchal consciousness. And we can expect queer thinking to refresh and reform Buddhism in the West. Hence, he calls on Western LGBTQ practitioners to place themselves at the vanguard of revisioning traditional Buddhist essentializing and negative attitudes towards gender and sexuality. However, something about identity keeps resisting deconstruction. If Buddhism suggests that identity is ultimately empty, and none less remains a dimension of experience that will always be with us and cannot be bypassed in the pursuit of something less mundane and more spiritual. Another old Zen koan addresses the issue with the following parable. It is like a water buffalo that passes through a latticed window. Its head, horns, and four legs all pass through. Why can't its tail pass through as well? The koan addresses our fantasies of transcendence. We want to pass through or pass beyond the limitations of our body. But inevitably, something gets stuck. We are grounded in this world despite all our best efforts. And we must come to see this not as an unfortunate limitation but itself as an expression of our true nature. The identities that contain our vulnerabilities, though from one's perspective arbitrary and insubstantial, from another literally embody our day-to-day -day existence. Indeed, Gleig's ethnographic survey of LGBTQ Buddhist sanghas suggests the dominant trend has been towards homonormative spaces in which gay identity is privileged. 
rather than following a more fluid, social constructivist performative model of gender and identity, such as put forth by Judith Butler, whose classic gender trouble was subtitled Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, such communities are more likely to embrace, whether explicitly or implicitly, an essentialist born that way model of gender and sexuality. For Butler and before her de Beauvoir's generation, the essentialist position regarding sex differences between men and women had all too often been used to further the assertion of biological inferiority of women. Feminist psychoanalytic alternatives like Benjamin's 1996 Defense of Gender Ambiguity presented a radical critique of the gender binary, a reconceptualization of object love and identificatory love that offered multiplicity as an alternative to heteronormative gender complementarity. But while this work opened up a conceptual space within psychoanalysis to think beyond normative binaries, the pull for essentialism remained strong in the popular culture and gay communities. Even now, the question of biological difference as the basis for gender remains controversial and unsettled. Gina Rippon, who after reviewing the long and highly contentious history of research into sex and gender difference, concluded that the well-established differences in the brains and behaviors of male and females are actually not that well-established and may in fact not even be differences. Yet we live in a culture that is deeply invested in one version or another of biology and destiny. Rippon cites the example of Olympic athlete, Bruce Jenner, who while transitioning to become Caitlyn Jenner asserted, my brain is much more female than it is male. While a previous generation sought to expand or eliminate socially determined gender roles, redefining what counts as masculine or feminine, a new generation's sense of agency is expanded to include the surgical transformation of the body. But for critics like Ripon, the notion of a male or female brain appears to be a somatization of a social problem and aggressive, a regressive return to essentialism. And therefore a biological, or genetic basis rather than a result of the vicissitudes of psychodynamics. Thus the excitement that at least temporarily greeted research such as Simon LeVay back in 1991, which purported to show variations in the structure of the hypothalamus between homosexual and heterosexual men, and the subsequent disappointingly futile search for a gay gene. Ironically, the assurance being sought from a, from a biological basis for male homosexuality was taking place in parallel with the social constructivist model of femininity and lesbianism 
being put forth by Butler and others at the same time. The essentialist position would ideally have reduced homosexuality to a single genetically predetermined trait rather than the complex family of behaviors, character styles, and relational configurations as ultimately envisioned by queer theory. At bottom, however, as I argued back in 1993 in my discussion of Freud's case study of a young homosexual woman, whether a trait is pathological or not is ultimately determined not by its origin, whether in genetics or family dynamics, but in how that trait functions in the whole context of a person's life. In establishing homonormative sanghas today, uh, students and teachers are privileging the creation of safe spaces, spaces free from socioeconomic, racial, and heteronormative prejudices that echoes the way Joko Beck created a sangha that was intended as a refuge from the authoritarian and or predatory male teachers of her generation. Acceptance would seem to be a cardinal virtue in both Buddhist and psychoanalytic practice, but it may be applied in very different ways, especially with regard to trans individuals. The dilemma is poignantly described by Ray Buckner, who writes about his transitioning process in the context of his Buddhist practice, where he likens the Buddhist home-leaving quest to his own leaving behind of his birth body and entering a new realm of identity and feeling as he begins testosterone therapy. Here, accept it means not accepting who he once was, but accepting his need to transform. His true self lies somewhere in the future, farther down a path that's just beginning. He says, the Buddha, needed, the Buddha knew what he needed to do and did it. Inspired by his teaching, I did the same. I knew I was unhappy and deserved more. I bared witness to my pain, bowed to it, and allowed myself to build a more hopeful, hopeful future. For Buckner, safety is, a, is paramount. He says, as a scholar, I engage Buddhism thought often, but as a practitioner, I haven't felt Buddhism's positive presence in my life for the past several years. When I've witnessed the depth of sexual violence within the community I was once part of, I couldn't trust my relationship to Buddhism. How could I know when a person or teaching would fail me? How could I trust the teacher or community wouldn't cause harm? As a survivor of sexual assault and as a transgender practitioner who made their way through many Buddhist communities before finding a home, the institutional failure experience severed a foundational trust within my body. Some dialectic between essentialist and non-essentialist positions of identity is clearly necessary in order to adequately respond to the felt needs of individuals like Ray Bruckner, 
we're not just abstractions we're theorizing about. We must contend with the reality that the body serves both as the locus of historically and culturally derived associations, such as seeing sexuality, attachment, and desire as defilements, and it is simultaneously the basis of sensual pleasure and intimacy, as well as the bearer of mortality, trauma, sickness, old age, and death. How can we weave all these things together? For something like an answer to that question, let me return to the Zen koan that served as an epigraph for this paper. It is called Diaryu's Dharma Body, and it relates to reclaiming the body in all its forms and guises. A monk asked his teacher, Diaryu, the body of form is destroyed. What is the enduring Dharma body? Dairyu answered, the autumn foliage is like brocade. The waters of the valley well up like indigo. Although this monk certainly knows the doctrine that everything is impermanent, like all of us, he yearns to discover an exception to the rule. The body of form is our physical body, as well as the physical form of the universe. It, along with everything else, will pass away. But isn't there, he asked, something that endures? A Dharma body as opposed to this ordinary one? Something transcendental? Something beyond the mundane particulars of mortal life? His teacher answers him with what seems like a non sequitur. Instead of pointing to something esoteric, something transcendental or heavenly, as the monk seems to want, the master replies by pointing to the changing colors of autumn and the ever-flowing stream. Come back down to earth, he says. This is all there is. Perhaps if I were to update the story and have Dariu point to all the colors of the rainbow, and let the rainbow symbolize all the varieties of gender, identity, and sexuality adumbrated by LGBTQ. The great gift that the clearing of Buddhism has given to our contemporary practice has been the joyful return to the body, not to the body merely as a source of defilements or the anxiety of mortality or vulnerability to trauma, but the body as the Dharma body, whose flesh and blood are inseparable from the beauty and wonder of the natural world. In this vision, our spiritual practice results in the re-legitimization of our personal, physical, and sexual identities as something to cherish in all their myriad forms, rather than to be dissolved in some universalizing solvent of oneness or emptiness. Thank you.